Welcome to Discover Ag, where every week we discover what's new in the world of agriculture. We're your host, Natalie Kavorik, a rancher and pharmacist from Nebraska. And Tara Vanderdusen, a dairy farmer and environmental scientist from New Mexico. And together we bring you our professional farming opinions on a variety of trending topics in the ag and food space, so you can better understand our food system and feel connected to the hands that feed us. Happy Thursday, Discos. Uh, Welcome back to our favorite day of the week. Uh, We are here with episode 95, and we are dedicating this episode to the dads. Happy belated Father's Day, everyone out there that's tuning in that is a dad or, you know, male role model, mayor figure. Um, I think a dad shows up in a lot of different ways, but we're dedicating this one to you. I know. It's been such a fun weekend celebrating the dads. I actually really love Father's Day. I just think it's a fun time. Like dads are like the spice of life, I feel like. Like moms are like the glue that holds everything together and dads are the fun ones. And so I just, I don't know, there's something just so fun about Father's Day. You guys had a good weekend. You were up at the lake, right? We cooked some good rancher steak. We Daniel wanted surf and turf, so I picked up some crab when I was in the quote-unquote big city the week before, and it was wonderful. It was great weather. Daniel got to do all the things he loves. It always cracks me up about what males want to do on Father's Day, <laughs> and I was going to ask. Daniel got to do everything he wanted to do. He grilled. He skied. Yeah. What about you guys? <laughs> we had a very unconventional Father's Day, um, And I don't want to share about it this week, which seems like weird and encrypted, but it'll make sense why I want to talk about Luke's Father's Day next week on the podcast. So I'm going to like just scoot on right by that. Um, But I do want to talk about Casper because Tad and I were in Casper, Wyoming. yeah. Yeah, we went for the CNFR, the College National Finals Rodeo. We have gone, this is our third year in a row, um, and it's such a good time. It's really fun to get that one-on-one time with Tad. And then obviously CNFR is like an absolute blast. So that was great. It was great. Tad really shines in your content during your week in Wyoming every year. He like, I just love him and the content he helps you create while you guys are traveling on your adventures. It is fun. He is not in my content a lot when we're at home just because he's like in school and sports and I don't know, you know, a teenager who's not always at home. And so I do think people like forget about Tad sometimes. <laughs> like someone actually messaged and was like, wait, who is Tad to you like on this trip? And I was like, oh, <laughs> he's my son. Hello. Welcome to my page. Um, <laughs> he's my personal assistant slash son. <laughs> yeah. So it is fun um, just to spend that quality time. Tad was really mad at me the night before we left. He got in trouble. And so the morning we were supposed to leave, he did not want to go. And it was, Casper was about a seven hour drive from us. And the first five hours, he did not speak to me. Oh no! So it was an interesting start. I said, I know you're really mad at me and you're upset, um, but can we please just enjoy, like this will probably be our last trip to Casper together. Can we please enjoy it? And by the time we like rolled into Casper, his mood had kind of changed. And so um, I was happy about that, but it did not start out that way, which I feel like is any parent tuning in with the teenager can experience, like relate, I think to that experience probably. You know, there's that like viral reel that goes around that like you only get 18 summers, you only get 18 spring breaks, you only get one, you know, kindergarten graduation, whatever. Like, and, um, I feel like it hits different because of my friendship with you and seeing Tad that like, he's about to graduate. Like he's about, like you said, this could be one of our last solo trips together. Like before, you know, he could be dating someone then, you know, they could be coming. Like there's just a lot of changes headed. Oh wow. Natalie's face. is She's not ready for those changes. <laughs> Do not get me started on the future mother-in-law. I will be actually, oh, we should probably save this for one of the personal episodes because Tara has a lot yes, of opinions I have a about lot to say how terrible I will probably be because I just have high expectations of who I want Tad to marry. 
I mean, I parent my littles differently because of where I'm at with Tad and how it truly is like an in my face reminder every single day of the growth and evolve and that they eventually, you know, leave your, leave the nest. And it's, it's really bittersweet. I have never been to Wyoming, but I actually had someone, uh, I was talking with someone about camping trips and I was like, Oh, my friend just got back from Wyoming. I, I think it's cool. You should go there. So I've been like pushing people to Wyoming based just solely on your Instagram stories, like hashtag influenced. I love that because I do think Wyoming is an undiscovered, unappreciated state. The people in Wyoming will be like, stop sending people here. (laughs) Um, I loved your tweet this weekend that was like, Wyoming is beautiful. Don't tell anyone from California. I uh, laughed so hard at that. It is hard because you obviously need like tourism and um, that's important parts. But um, I, I driving through when we went back to Montana a couple weeks ago, I started to think Wyoming is more pretty than Montana because Montana is getting so developed in certain areas that I feel like you are losing like the vastness of the West and that feel of like expansion when you look out. And that is still intact in Wyoming. Like the drive from Nebraska to Casper is absolutely beautiful. It is, it's just open field. It's just stunning. I kept thinking I can see how people come here and think, wow, like this cannot be real life. Um, It's just really, really gorgeous. Last note from Maddie on this conversation. She went to Casper last year with her husband, Kent, and he loved it. it I'm telling you guys, if you are tuning in and you watch my Instagram stories and you think I was just promoting to promote, I cannot recommend CNFR and Casper, Wyoming enough. It is truly such a good family vacation, but I also like would love to just go with Luke. I think it'd be a great couple trip. I think it would be a great friend trip. Um, the CNFR is like such a well-run rodeo and it's so fun that it's college kids. I always say that I feel like it makes experience that much more better because they talk about like where the kids are from, the, what they're studying, like all of this information. And it's so cool. Like there's something really great about like cheering on youth still that are like out there, like chasing their passions. And it's like the seniors, like their last ride, like, I don't know, the CNFR is so well-ran and so fun. And then I feel like Casper does it does have really neat museums and they're just, I don't know. It's just, I feel like an untapped, unappreciated area. So if you are looking for a family trip next year, I highly recommend looking into Casper, Wyoming and the CNFR. It's always in like the second week of June. So check it out. Um, before we move into our articles though, we need to do our word of the week. Are you ready for Oh my our- gosh. I was like ready to move into the article. I'm glad you reminded me. What's our word of the week. People really loved this last week. Oh, good. I I was not on the Discover um, social page, so I didn't get any of the feedback. So, mm-hmm. but I did see people love. Thank you for all of the help with the chicken for us as well. Oh my gosh, we Holy are going to be chicken cooking girlies <laughs> officially. I saw someone recommend the beer can chicken. I was like, yep. oh yeah, my mother in law does that. I was like, duh, that'd be a good way to do it. Yeah, lots of good recommendations. The discovery of the week is inutil. 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 Yes, and inutil. What? Should I guess what that means? No, do not okay. embarrass yourself. I will just tell you and say all. because I have no idea where it's headed. <laughs> it is an adjective for ineffective. The instructions provided with the kids' play grant were inutile. So my husband spent almost two weeks building the play set in our backyard. So inutile. A new word for ineffective is inutile. Inutile. Okay. I don't know if I'm going to be able to work that in as well as I did last week, but I will try. I have faith in you. Okay. All right. Kicking off our first article, you guys. Title, Farmer-Led Political Party Emerges in Ireland to Fight Against Current Emissions Policies. According to local news, the main catalyst for the formation of the Farmers Alliance was the success of the BB Party in the Netherlands, a farmer-led party that claimed the majority of seats in the country's upper house earlier this year. 
And we do cover that, the, the Netherlands BBB party, on episode 75 of Discover Ag. So if you like this conversation, you can head over there and check out more of that and what happened in the Netherlands. Um, but as far as the Irish farmers go, you know, we talked with about them a little bit last week, but they have had a lot of challenges in the legislation in the past year, um, becoming one of the first countries to legislate a reduction in livestock emissions in July. Yeah, so like Tara said, we covered this last week, and in case you missed that episode, um, Ireland is basically the first country to have this livestock emission reduction. They're going for that 25%, and basically, you know, people that are against that are saying that that high of a a percentage is going to leave no choice but to cull cattle, which cull is essentially another word for kill. Um, the reason I think we chose to talk, continue talking about this and pull this article is I think there are... There were a couple really interesting things in this article that we did not touch on last week that are going above and beyond um, just this main issue of culling cattle in Ireland. Um, and one of them is what we already mentioned. It's this new group, I think, being formed out of Ireland that is almost on a parallel track to the group out of Netherlands, the BBB. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons this is so important is we we touched on this last week, but didn't get into it. They have a legally binding pledge to reduce emissions, as you said, by 25% by 2030. Like they have to do this. It's not, you know, they, a lot of times when you talk about countries having like emission standard, it's more of like voluntary guidelines or, um, you know, it's just a pledge that kind of is out there and it doesn't carry a lot of weight. This carries a lot of weight. And so that is why these farmers are really feeling the pressure and the need to be able to like represent themselves in legislation and, you know, at a federal is, is it called federal there? I'm not sure all the words for their government, but represent themselves in government. So one thing I thought was interesting is if you looked at like the Netherlands case study, I guess looked at it as a case study, it took a long time for them to form that farmer-led group, right? They went through weeks, months, almost years, right, of revolt yes. and protesting before they gathered together to make this farmer initiative voice. Did not take Ireland that long. I feel like Everyone is kind of taking a page out of Netherlands book and they are bypassing and skipping a lot of the, the intermediate time. I was just surprised at how quickly Ireland came out with this new group um, in comparison to the Netherlands. Yeah, and I mean, their real goal here with their Farmer Alliance is to push back on European Union policies. Like, they want to, um, I saw one of their main mission is to make sure that farming is still profitable. And so it really is like a very grassroots organization. I don't know where we want to go with this first, this conversation, because there's a lot to this and what is going on in Ireland. But I feel like I, thanks to you, kind of ended up down uh, the genetics rabbit hole. So... I kind of want to start there. Yeah, I think that's a really great place to start because that was one of the things that caught my eye in this article again and why we're, I guess, covering Ireland back to back. There was a quote um, that I can't, I didn't write down who said it, but they were saying that they think that Ireland can achieve this 25% reduction through genetics and breeding, um, breeding improvements. Let me see if I can find the exact quote. One of the quotes I saw was, the more efficient animals are making less methane. And he is a geneticist and technical director in Ireland. And so I think this is like, with this goes to something we talk about a lot. Like Ireland is leading the way in genetics and we need them to continue doing that and making like strides in genetics and animal 
overall animal husbandry and like sustainability. Instead of just saying like, let's get rid of cattle. It's like, why can't we continue to make advancements with like genetics to make these improvements? And it's similar in the United States. Like if you, we have some really big like statements for dairy that we've reduced emissions and done different things. And a big portion of that is because of cattle genetics. We've improved the genetics of dairy cattle. So they produce more milk. We don't have to have as many dairy cows and we produce the same, if not more milk, which means they produce less methane. And it kind of goes back actually to the episode we have with Kim Stackhouse, who she was saying like feed efficiency is at the core of what you want to do when you feed cattle. And feed, if a cow has good genetics and has better feed efficiency, they produce less methane. Like this is all, it all ties together, works together. Yeah. So diving into the genetic portion, Ireland has one of the world's most elaborate genetic databases. It was created in the 1990s and it has more than 30 entities in the Irish beef and dairy industries where they basically came together um, and gave up like genetic data for the benefit of everyone. It's called the ICBF, the Irish Cattle Breeding Federation. Um, and again, it's just the single national body that owns and it provides like national genetic index indexes to guide genetic selection for the entire country. One of the things that when you dive further into this ICBF, they're talking about how they have already had incorporation of methane traits into the national genetic selection indexes, um, as well as you kind of mentioned like finishing ages and like different things with the finishing feed. And so that's how they are confident that they can use like this genetics and the breeding to meet that 25% reduction. I find the conversation about sharing the genetic data really fascinating. I actually was in kind of a heated debate a couple weeks ago at a board meeting about um, the conversation of whether farmers, this was specifically dairy farmers, should be sharing more information, more of their data in order to like build databases like this that are so helpful. But at the same time, like your data is so valuable. There is a ton of, you know, value to the farmer in that data to just like give it away for free. And I kind of erred on the side of more like, well, I think you own your data and, you know, you don't have to give it to people. And then reading this, I was like, okay, I'm backtracking maybe on that <laughs> statement a little bit. And like, I know there's value when we put all of our data together and have like a really strong science message as far as being able to combat some of this, you know, climate pledges and like ultimately in, in favor of not culling cows, I would be in favor of putting our data together. We're in favor of a lot of other things besides culling cows. It's <laughs> like <laughs> <Yeah>. plan Z. <laughs> that is. Uh, another thing with this that is in a different direction is the Dublin Declaration came out of Ireland not that long ago that is very pro-livestock. So it seems like it is a very like juxtaposition. Uh, get a half a point. That was two weeks ago, word of the week. So, okay. I only get a half a point. I haven't worked in today's yet, but, uh, they would have that declaration that was saying like, I mean, my notes from that are just, there's tons of information in that declaration It's very pro ruminant animals, cattle, grazing, all of those things. And then at the same time to have these policies that are talking about culling cattle. Yeah. So for everyone who's tuning in, isn't familiar, the Dublin declaration, um, of scientists presents like a balanced view of science supporting animal agriculture. So basically they came out saying that, you know, livestock systems are too precious to become the victim of like simplification or, and reductionism, which I think is something that we talk about a lot is that these are very complex nuanced conversations. And when you try and put animal proteins and animal agriculture into like a little simple box, it just doesn't work. Yeah. And what's cool about the Dublin Declaration is they really dived into all the aspects. Like you have, you know, the conversation around the nutrition side that the, their studies found that even in higher income populations, 
they were lacking really essential nutrients that you can get from you know, animal proteins. And they get into, you know, the benefits for children and pregnant women, nursing moms, um, elderly, like all of those groups. And then I feel like they went on to your favorite topic about how ruminants are the best, especially for marginal lands and soil health. Like they covered all of the spectrums in it. And it was, it was, they definitely were not trying to make it simple. They were like, cause this is not simple. We, we need to be talking about all of the aspects of animal uh, proteins instead of just like, what are their emissions? That carbon tunnel that we talk about so often. Have you seen yet if any of Ireland is doing protests to the extent of the Netherlands? Like are videos or anything trending? I have not seen anything in the way that uh, the Netherlands has. And we have to remember, like you said, the Netherlands have been at this for years. Like it started in like 2018. And so I feel like they've gained a lot of momentum. And it'll be interesting to see if Ireland can pick up some of that same like social currency that like getting attention online, um, you know, having some things go viral. I think that really helped like bolster the Netherlands and get global attention on their cause. Yeah. If anyone listening has seen stuff, we send it our way. Cause I have not seen it yet either. And so I guess I'm just really curious. Um, I feel like we have two very interesting case studies going on, unfortunately for the Netherlands and Ireland. Um, and I, I want to observe how they are parallel and things are doing similarity, like the way Ireland is handling it and things they choose to do differently than the way Netherlands did. And so if anyone just has more information or as stuff comes out, um, send it our way, please. Yes, definitely. We love being able to share straight from you guys. If we have any Irish followers too, we want to hear from you guys, as we said last week. All right. Before we get into our second article, we want to thank a new sponsor that we have here on Discover Ag. Uh, today's episode is proudly sponsored by Neutral. We covered Neutral actually in an article. It is a milk company. It's the first carbon neutral food company in the U.S. And we talked about their carbon neutral milk on the podcast. Uh, Neutral's organic pasture-raised milk comes from small family dairy farms and supports their mission of reducing greenhouse gas emissions in agriculture for good. Neutral partners directly with the dairy farmers to provide expert guidance and financial support for implementing climate smart practices on farms. If you're a farmer or rancher interested in partnering, visit their website at www.eatneutral.com and find neutral milk nationwide in Whole Foods, Sprouts, and other natural retailers. Yeah, I'm really excited to bring neutral on. I was a very organic um, partnership. They just, they had people who work for neutral that listened to us. And so they reached out and just kind of inquired about ways that we can work together to further discover ag and further neutral. And so we have some fun stuff with them. We're going to actually bring on, um, I believe she is the head of carbon reduction and bring her on for an interview. So lots of fun stuff with neutral coming up. Yep. All right. Getting into our second article. Title, are Skittles dangerous? Question mark. A California bill aims to ban chemicals in candy. A proposed bill is seeking to halt the manufacture, sale, or distribution of any food product in the state containing red dye number three, titanium dioxide, potassium bromate, brominated vegetable oil, or propyl paraben, arguing that those chemicals are dangerous and already banned in the European Union and other countries. Can I start by saying I hate Skittles? Like, I hate them. I actually hate Skittles too. And it's one of Luke's favorite candy. And so if we ever do stop and he always brings them out and I'm like, no, I don't like them. They give me a headache. I, I don't know. Oh my gosh. We're like the same person. Oh, Maddie hates them too. Oh my gosh. We are all on the same wavelength today. This article, obviously it focused a lot on red dye number three, which I feel like if you are in any like mom food group reels, 
that is a popular topic. I feel like it's like up there right now with like seed oils. Actually, it's been going on longer than seed oils. I feel like since Guinevere was a kid, like don't give your kid red dye number three. So it didn't totally shock me that this was like coming down the pipeline as far as legislation of actually like legislating it out. Yeah. So I want to table that for a second. We'll back up because I do think there are two main issues why this is trending and red dye is definitely one of the issues. But I guess a little bit more on the bill. And (laughs) I also have a lack in like governmental knowledge. (laughs) Luke often is surprised I am a functioning 35-year-old female with uh, the way I understand our judicial um, system. But it passed assembly and I could not figure out where assembly was, if that is high or low or like where that falls in like California legislature. Do you know? I would imagine that like it has to pass assembly then to get onto like the House or Senate floor within their state. Okay. I feel like I should know this. I do have like a minor in policy and law, but I don't feel like it, it's not coming in clutch. It's in the a same minor. Way Just a minor, not <laughs> <Yeah>. a major. <laughs> um, so anyway, after I read the assembly, I was kind of trying to figure that out. But I was basically reading that they – don't think this bill will have enough momentum to pass um, and that it still has a long way to go before it could become legislation. So a lot of it was like, people don't get your panties in a twist. Like it's not as close to, I guess, coming to fruition as titles, news headlines would make it seem to be. Yes, I saw that too. And I saw that a lot of people said the reality is, is what they're hoping is that companies will change their recipes, that it will never become a law. It will just be social pressure for these companies to ditch these ingredients. Um, Obviously, the food industry is opposing this bill. Yes. So there's two camps, like you said, there's basically the camp that is, you know, food goes under undergoes strict testing and the FDA, you know, administers all these programs to demonstrate that the data is there to support safety, um, yada, yada, yada. So there's like that camp of people that are like, our food system is safe. And then there is this other camp where a lot of this traction for the bill is coming from that is really headed by, I guess, groups like the EWG group is there, the Consumer Reports, Um, the Center for Environmental Health, Children's Advocacy Institute. So there's like a lot of these advocacy groups that I feel like are like heading the opposite side of the camp that are really calling for, as you said, they are pushing not for the ban of candy, but ban of the chemical, the quote unquote chemicals in the candy. And so they're really looking for like basically a restructure of what goes into candy here in the U.S., Yeah, it was no surprise that the environmental working group was pushing for this. You know, our friends over there, they, um, I, this just felt very up their alley. I know you have much more issue with the EWG than I do. Should I be ashamed to admit that I put in my, um, body wash in the EWG? I wanted to see what like ranking it got from it. Yes, you should be. (laughs) (laughs) I know some people do like them. I just have personal problems with how they attack animal agriculture. To me, there are two big glaring issues that I think people are upset about this. One is, well, maybe we'll do this one first. One is the EU versus US. I think there is so much attention and focus on what we allow in the US versus what the EU allows. It's all over social media. It was all over these articles. And it it is a big difference. If you want more on this, I think the food science babe has multiple highlight bubbles on her Instagram where she covers exactly what is banned in the EU versus what is allowed in the US and does it from a really like 
science-based fact approach. Sometimes things are just labeled different things, but people love to talk about what's banned in the EU and is acceptable here. Yeah. So the Food Science Babe actually says the reason why there are such differences between the U.S. and the U. is because the EU takes a hazard approach and the U.S. takes a risk-based approach. And so that is why you see different things. Like, for example, when it comes to this article, Europe has banned titanium dioxide, one of the things that this article is pushing for. Red dye in the U is only authorized in like a very limited amount of things. And I think it's an almost like 3,000 things in the U.S. So there are very different, again, major differences when it comes to the EU. Yeah. And not to bring in about milk, but I'm going to. I also just think it's funny that people love to talk about EU's labeling and they they think the EU does such a great job and they have all these bans. But then on the milk side of things, the EU does not allow plant-based beverages to call themselves milk. So like I do think we in the United States kind of pick and choose which EU bans and word choices we like and which ones we don't. I saw somewhere in the EU that they're actually not allowing plant-based milks in the school system right now. An article nope. came out about that. Not allowed to have plant-based milks in the EU. So very interesting as well, that like um, contrast. Okay, so the other thing, the glaring issue besides this, like what the EU allows versus US, when it comes to red dye number three, I was not aware of this. And I do think this is unusual and I can see why people are upset about it. But right now in the US, red dye number three is banned in cosmetics. It has been since the 1990s. Um, It's not allowed in lipsticks, powders, blushes, skincare, lotions, like anything that's externally applied. Um, But it is still used in foods, drug, you know, dietary supplements and like drugs we ingest. And I think there is a little bit of discrepancy in that. That was one of my biggest points on this was that exact point. So like it's banned in cosmetics, but it's okay for us to like consume it. That felt very not okay. And I'm actually usually pretty skeptical of claims about different things. Like I think people you know, get more worried about like food additives or ingredients than I typically do. But that I was like, how can we say it's illegal in cosmetics, but okay in food? The FDA issued a statement though, that back in the 1990s, that it was in the process of extending the ban to cover foods, the drugs and the supplements. And it just never has, which is one of those things that like, when we talked about that list of like advocacy groups that are against this, they keep going back to that. Like you've been saying you were going to do something about this for 20 years now and nothing has been done. And so it is, like you said, I was very interesting to me. And I can see now that I have that point about red three number die. I'm like, I don't understand why it's not okay for me to put in my lipstick, but it's okay for me to congest like my child to scarf down a, you know, package of Skittles. Like it doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, That other one, the other ingredient that stuck out to me was the titanium dioxide because that's used in a lot of sunscreens. Actually, a lot of like natural sunscreens use, like if you get a low ingredient sunscreen, it almost always has titanium dioxide. So it kind of, that was another red flag for me that it was like, okay, so is it okay in sunscreen? Because a lot of the natural mineral-based sunscreens have it, but it's not okay in your food. I don't know. It was lots of questions for me there. So that's how I felt kind of about this whole thing. Honestly, it's hard for me to like point the finger or land anywhere on, I guess, this the spectrum of where I, I fall on this because I do feel like <laughs> we talk a lot this about this a lot, like emotion versus science. And I do feel like this is one area where I really get caught up in the emotion of things. Like when it comes to chemicals, I am one of those persons that fall victims to like, I don't know if we should be consuming these things in our diets. I mean, you and I talk a lot about how we are advocates for like a whole food diet, like the less ingredients in there, the better. But then I go visit a food science babe page where she's telling me that 
you know, just because you can't pronounce something doesn't mean it's inherently bad. And like, I always think of the graphic that, um, Jack Bobo uh, has Jack Bobo has, it's like a Kiwi and then below it, it's broken down into like its scientific name and it's really long. Like it's a long paragraph of the things that go into make, you know, the chemical compounds essentially of a Kiwi. And so this is just like a very blurry category topic for me. Like I, I don't know where I fall or land in it. I 100% agree with you. And then I think my last point that I want to bring up is a lot of this was talking about data and like, well, this study says it's okay. And this study says it's not okay. And this like a lot of back and forth. And you were talking about some of the studies are back from like the 1970s, 1980s. Like at what point is data outdated? And I even think about that when we think about like the food pyramid and like our conversations about fat content and you know, things are evolving and changing and we're changing so many different things. Like at what point do we say like, I don't, I think we need to go back and reevaluate some of those studies that maybe we looked at to say it was approved or that it was outlawed and say like, is there more, is there new data? Is there new information that we could actually bring to this conversation? Yeah. It's interesting you talk about that because I remember learning in pharmacy school that like the Food and Drug Act, which is like one of the things we learn about, was like from 1906. And obviously there are like amendments to it and stuff, but I'm like, that's a little old. Yeah. (laughs) So, but then on the opposite like side of the coin is like, it's like funding, right? It all comes down to like dollars and money put into it. And then like who's willing to invest in it. And then you get into like everything is industry funded and we can't trust any of those studies. And I just feel like you're damned if you do and damned if you don't anymore when it comes to like food and the science and the studies behind it. The last thing I'm going to say, speaking of industry, is I was not aware that there is an international association of color manufacturers until I read this article. Like, talk about jobs you don't think about out there in the world is there is someone that is a color manufacturer and they have an association for them. And they're obviously pro. Pro red dye number three. three. (laughs) They know where they fall on the scale of this this topic. (laughs) Oh. All right. Diving into our third article. Um... But first, we're going to do a shout out, right? Yes. We're going to remind you about our giveaway. We haven't done that in a while, but I want to remind you that we do a monthly giveaway. If you share about uh, Discover Ag on social media, you tag us, leave us a review, um, all of those amazing things. They help other people find us um, and share it with your friends and family. We pick a winner every single month to send a really great gift bag, goodie bag, a goodie box. I never know what to call it, but it's filled with some of our favorite things, and we send it to one lucky winner every single month. So please leave us those reviews and give us those shout-outs. And speaking of the giveaway, this is like a tag on to the giveaway and also a shout-out because I want to highlight one of our followers, Mark. Um, I, I'm confident you're listening because you are an amazing disco. He's like he one of our sent- OGs. I know. And he sent in a package this weekend. I haven't even shared this with you yet of items he wanted to donate to the discover ad giveaway. He handmade them. I know he it's the coolest cherry turned bowl. I selfishly would like to keep it for myself, but I'm going to pass it along to our disco community. And then he sent in some really neat necklaces that his niece made that, um, handmade by her. They're like adventuring. They're like these stones. And one is like an epidote and they are just beautiful and stunning. And I honestly teared up a little bit when I undid the boxing because there was the nicest note just about encouraging discover ag. And it just reminded me how lucky we are to have this community of all of you guys tuning in. So just a shout out to Mark specifically, but also to all of you guys listening. You guys are what makes our podcast so great. We are absolutely nothing without you guys. It would just be me and Tara talking to each other, which is 
not fun or amazing. So thank you for tuning in every week. Thank you. Yeah. Not what we're striving for. So thank you for tuning in. Thank you for sharing. Um, and Mark, thank you so much for blessing this month's and probably next month's too, because there's quite a bit in here that we'll be able to split this into two um, and add in some really, really cool things to the Discover giveaway. Mm, that warms my heart. All right. Diving into the third article titled USDA Weighs Ban on Chocolate Milk in School Cafeterias. U.S. officials are considering a ban on chocolate milk in elementary and middle school cafeterias due to its high sugar content. The proposed flavored milk... M- Moratorium, which was considered but abandoned by New York City Mayor Eric Adams, has been adapted by major cities like Washington, D.C. and San Francisco and was first floated by the feds earlier this year. Before we get into the actual article, I want to give some background about this entire conversation because it is milk. So, you know, I'm showing up. All right. So bear with me. Okay. I prepared very little notes knowing you would fully show up as the New Mexico milkmaid. I was like, perfect. Don't worry, coming in clutch. So all milk, whether it is flavored or whole, like regular milk, white milk, has to be 1% or skimmed milk. It, we, it is illegal to serve whole milk or 2% in schools. Um, this ban happened in 2010 during Michelle Obama's big school lunch initiative. I think everyone kind of remembers that. I also think it's worth noting that whole milk is 3.25% fat, and then there's 2%, then there's 1%, and then there's obviously skim milk. So whole milk does not mean it's like 100% fat. I think there's like really uh, people don't understand like the fat content of like whole milk versus the others. And the issue really is, is that the fat and calorie content is too high in milk because it's considered a beverage and not a food. And so there's like a lot of conversations of whether milk should actually be considered a food group. And then you're allowed to have more calories, fat content, all of those things. But since it's a beverage, it gets lumped in with like soda pop, which is obviously problematic. Um, Maybe I'll stop there and see if you want to jump in, but I have some other great facts too. Yeah. So talk about living under rocks. I fully remember like Michelle Obama's overhaul to the food system and that that was like kind of one of her stances or missions, I guess, of her time in in the office. But I didn't realize 2% was not in the school system. I guess I never really think much about whole milk. Like our family drinks 2%. And so when I saw that 2% wasn't an option, I was a little taken aback that that is not an option. Um, and I think this goes to my bigger issue pictures with this, which we can dive into a minute, but I have problems with school systems making choices for our families that I don't think need to be made for our families that I think are sometimes the parents roles to make. And I understand that, um, not every child has a parent advocating them for the best. And so like the school system sometimes is the place where they get the meal or is getting, you know, some of the, like it's a fine line to walk. Um, but I was kind of upset when I read that like 2% whole milk isn't allowed in the school system. Well, and it kind of goes back to the whole 1990s situation of like fat is bad. Everything should be fat free. And that was when we started putting sugar into things. So even like the flavored milk, like there's a lot of advocates out there that are like, fine, do away with the flavored milk. If you gave kids whole milk or 2%, they're more likely to drink it. But like, I think we can all agree 1% or skimmed milk, plain milk is probably not going to be kids favorites. Like that's not what they're going to choose off the shelf. And there's actually, um, which this is part of the article. There's a lot of advocates in like the child nutrition space that like, 
believe we should be serving whole milk, that flavored milk should be involved because kids that drink chocolate milk are less likely to drink soda pop or juice, which is obviously a lot more calories, a lot more sugar and no nutritional value. And um, kids that drink chocolate milk typically have a comparable weight, a healthy weight. It like it's not nece- it's not the root cause as this is saying of like sugary like drinks causing obesity. Like I think milk is getting lumped in with like the soda pops of the world. The way I understood this article is that they are trying to get rid of chocolate milk because of the sugar because they want to combat childhood obesity. So that's one side of the camp. And the other side of the camp is like sure there's added sugar into it. But there's also a whole lot more that goes into milk than just the sugars. And when we remove that, we're removing a lot of nutrients from the child's diet. Exactly. Like, I mean, you definitely hit the nail on the head with that. And I think something we also have to remember is milk has naturally occurring sugars. So we really need to get into the conversation of added sugars. So a lot of the comparisons where they're like, it has just as much sugar as a soda pop. It's like there are naturally occurring sugars. Like that'd be like saying like, a banana is bad for you because it has naturally occurring sugars. Like I think we can all agree, like if a kid ate a banana, we'd be thrilled about it. Um, So it's like the added sugar. And uh, one of the fun facts I have though is added sugar from flavor to milk accounts for only about 3% of total added sugar intake in kids' diets. So it is a very low on the totem pole as far as where you're getting your sugar intake from. Um, this was this is a huge hot topic right now, obviously in the dairy space. The board meeting that I was at, two weeks ago, uh, we had an entire presentation on this bill, what's going on, what's happening. And one of the things that I think is kind of interesting is that even if it passes, 90% of processing plants are already figuring out how to comply with the new standards and updating recipes that will have lower sugar. And I think I actually fall in the camp that I'm like, we should be allowed to have whole milk 2%, like you said, and I'm okay with reducing sugar. And it's easier to reduce sugar when the fat content is there. I think I fall exactly where you are is that I would love to see more of the options put back in. I mean, I don't want to drink skim milk. I don't either. My mother-in-law, my in-laws have skim milk. And every time I see a port, I'm like, that does not look, does does not not look, look okay. Nina Teichels, who's one of our, I feel like, favorites to follow online, she did a really great post and an entire article with like studies and everything about this conversation. And one of her big things was like milk consumption overall is down, even flavored milk, and obesity is up. So like, how are we correlating these two things as similar trends when they are headed in the opposite direction? And and it kind of goes back to my first point of like kids who drink milk are less likely to drink soda. So like, isn't that a positive benefit? You're the one who picked this article, obviously. And I, I had seen on Twitter, like the whole milk going on. I feel like New York is really leading that movement of trying to get whole milk back into the school system. And so honestly, like as embarrassing as this is to admit, I honestly thought it was just outlawed in the state of New York. I didn't realize it was (laughs) nationwide. The title of this episode is Natalie lives under a rock. Yes, for sure. But I was aware of whole milk, but now I'm for sure watching both of them. I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens like with Flavored milks, the whole milk, like the whole shebang across the board with our school system and the lunches. Yes, I, I, it'll be interesting to see if it passes and how people, you know, the companies change the recipes. It'll be interesting if this does bring up a conversation of like what alternatives are being offered and how can they make their uh, recipes be also like standard school calorie intake, you know, nutrient availability. All right. Anything else in Mexico milk made? No, I think I've taken up enough of our time talking about milk today. Thank you guys for humoring me, following me on this journey. 
Oh, all right, you guys, we will see you next week. Thank you so much for tuning in to Discover Ag, where every week we discover what's new in the world of agriculture.